You're about to meet a group of people who will inspire you to do more because each and every day, that's what they do. They are passionate, they are dedicated. They are your 2019 Queensland Australians of the Year. So let's meet them. Elijah Boll is Queensland's Local Hero of the Year. Professor James Dale, our Senior Australian of the Year for Queensland. Angel Dixon is Queensland's Young Australian of the Year. And Detective Inspector John Rouse is Queensland's Australian of the Year for 2019. They are people who have dedicated their lives to a cause, but then also are world leaders in many respects in their fields. And what they are doing is life changing. My name's Craig Zonka. I'm not an Australian of the Year, but I tell you what, I feel pretty privileged to be in their company today. So, Elijah, when you walked up onto that stage, you had a broad smile on your face. We're seeing it now. What did it mean to you to be named our local hero of the year? Thanks, Craig, uh, for having me. Uh, it was an honour and great honour to be named uh, 2019 Queensland Local Hero of the Year. And it was a great feeling to be honoured alongside uh, with amazing people who are doing a great job in the community. And it was life-touching and amazing time. In fact, there was not a dry eye in the house after you got up, Elijah. Um, for you and your family, because you're from Sudan, you came out here in, what was it, 2002, you arrived in Brisbane. You're now a dad to four, uh, you've gone on to study, we'll hear a bit more about your story soon, but to you, to be named an Australian of the Year, our local hero of the year, how does that title sit with you, given your journey over the past 10 years or so? It was a great uh, confirmation of how great Australia is. And at the time when I was up there, I was not looking at myself, at my history back, but looking at how much this country can give and how much I can give to the country that give me much. And that was, yeah, I think that was what was unique about my history at the time. And I think it's something that we always don't cherish much to see how better we can achieve more when the opportunities are there and when we focus on them with the support of the people around here. I'll pick up on those themes as well. Angel, you're Queensland's Young Australian of the Year. How did you feel walking up onto that stage when your name was read out? I think you're probably the only other person that would know exactly how I was feeling in that moment. I literally had no words. <laughs> I was not expecting it and I remember you nudging me and saying, it's okay. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's right, I have to talk now. <laughs> um, yeah, it was phenomenal. And I think just touching on what Elijah just said, it was amazing to be just recognised in a group of some really amazing people, but then feeling the support of everyone around me was just incredible. And I mean, that's that's extended to this entire year. Australians from all over the country have just been so incredibly supportive and it's, it's just meant everything, particularly for, for my work. Yeah, and you've been such an advocate for inclusion, for disability rights and for improving that conversation. Do you feel that, you know, it's another soapbox that you get to stand on when you're a young Australian of the year? Totally. Um, it's been... It's been awesome actually, because uh, I guess 
being someone who kind of preaches <laughs> constantly, um, this this role or this title comes with credibility. Um, it, it comes with it, people actually want to listen to not just your personal story, but they're interested in what you're promoting. Um, and, and the cause is at the heart of everything I do. So that's been a real change for me, um, particularly I work in the modelling industry a lot of the time, so when I say I'm also an activist, people go, hmm, how does that fit in? But now people really understand, and it's been really, really nice. You're an activist with a massive Instagram following, that's what that means. <laughs> uh, Professor James Dale, as Queensland Senior Australian of the Year, and, and even now, it looks like you're thinking about that moment when you went up on, onto stage. Uh, what went through your mind at the time? Wow, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a fabulous evening, Craig. I think there were, there were a couple of things that, that I found really impressive. And one was the other groups of people that were there was just amazing. Um, and in all the categories, in, including the one that I was successful in, um, I think was terrific. The other really important thing for me was it was Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't born in Queensland. It's taken me nearly 50 years to become accepted as a Queenslander. Well, if we knew that before. Yeah, yeah we, we uh. wouldn't have gone over the line, <laughs> I, re I recognise that. But that, so all of my um, professional career, or the vast majority of it, has been in Queensland. And, that, and Queensland has supported me in so many ways. And it was really nice to be part of that night. Well, you say that, and I think you're very much a Queenslander because you work with bananas, so you are a true banana bender, James Dale. Absolutely. <laughs> and proud of it. We'll talk more about your work <laughs> in a moment, but let's go to, to John Rouse, who is our Queensland Australian of the Year. As you reflect on that title, John, what has it meant to you? Well, first I'll, I'll reflect on the fact that sadly I wasn't there <laughs> With these guys. Yeah, your brother got to hog the spot. My brother did. Um, yeah, I, when that was announced, I was somewhere, I think, over WA coming back from Copenhagen. When I landed, my phone just almost exploded with the, the messages. So uh, my initial reaction, similar to everyone else's, was, um, you know, I'm just a cop doing my job at the end of the day. So for me, it, it, I just, it was just overwhelming. I just couldn't quite comprehend what that would mean. But... Um, what does it mean for me? Uh, it elevated the work that I and a lot of police across the country do uh, into the public focus for a little while. Uh, it's, it's very difficult, challenging work and it's done by police across the country. And for me, it, just, it was just an honour to be able to stand there and represent the rest of my colleagues. And that's interesting because you say, you're just a police officer doing his job and you don't do the job for accolades you don't do the job for rewards you do the job because you're passionate about it and for almost two decades it led task force argos with the queensland police service which deals particularly around child protection and the um looking at child sex offenders whether they be here in queensland elsewhere around the country or elsewhere around the world but why did you first want to become a police officer? Yeah, it's a good question because I thought I wanted to be a police officer when I was in school, like in year 12, but I was also being torn to be a professional musician. So <laughs> That's quite a contrast, isn't it? It, it was, yeah. yeah. Rock star so, or police officer. Yeah, so that's, that's 1981. I, uh, I left school and I, I decided I'd explore 
the musical side. So I joined the Commonwealth Bank, which helped fund musical equipment. So I tried that for a couple of years, and while I worked at the bank, we got I got held up, had a gun pointed at me twice as a teller, and um, that kind of I think pushed me towards the law enforcement path. So. I, uh, I joined the police, got sworn in. I joined in 1984, and yeah, now here I am, a well, long time later. Your work these days goes into some pretty deep and, and dark places. Just describe some of the things that you and, and your team, because as you constantly say, this is not just your effort, it's a great team that you have behind you that do the work you do. Yeah, well, that team started with me and two others, and now we're 40. So, you know, in 19 years, uh, we've grown exponentially and got a, a whole crew of people that feel exactly the same way that I do. But the, by the nature of the work, it's, it's international. You know, the internet is a global web of people communicating with each other. So we can't sit here in the state of Queensland and see what's happening in Africa or India, United States, Canada, and just go, well, that's not my problem. Uh, so if we see, and what we see every day uh, is images and video, increasingly video, uh, and high quality video too, to the point where we can get a fingerprint off it now. Uh, the resolution is so good of you know, children anywhere from the, uh, uh, the age of six months through to you know, 13, 14 years of age being sexually abused. So our focus over that period of time has been to create awareness and change policy and legislation in countries where it doesn't exist. And it's variable. Some countries, developed countries, you know, Canada, the United States and across Europe have got capability, they have got laws, they can respond to a lead that we might send them. But, you know, I've gone into Kenya and I've just returned from India and uh, I've been to Colombia and a, a range of, of different countries where they don't have that. They're, they're dealing with human rights issues, let alone this. So my big push has been to, to change that perception and, and, and help them to learn from what we've learnt in Australia. And we're doing it, we're, we're achieving that, that. That trip that I just returned from, you know, the Kerala State Police have now created basically a, a Task Force Argos. Uh, their commission has put 15 people online, 52 response capability across the country, across the state, and then just dedicated 20 forensic positions to this. And they've given me you know, the data from the arrests that they just made. They just made 28 arrests because of the training that they received from us. We'll analyse the data and help them with the victim identification component of that. That hopefully will push dominoes across India. That's the plan. It's that dedication and commitment, John, that has seen you being named our Queensland Australian of the Year for 2019. But I have to ask, is there still a bit of 80s music involved there somewhere? Did you ever live out that, that rock star lifestyle you, you once dreamt of? <laughs> yeah, look, music's always been part of my life. So um, I don't look uh, anywhere near as young and I, I can't pull some of the moves off on stage anymore, but uh, we're still playing. Yeah, we're still playing. So uh, John Rouse, you know, Queensland police officer for many years. 80s rock guitarist as keyboard well. Player, keyboard player, not guitarist. Not guitarist, keyboard player. I do have a keyboard. Well, that is very <laughs> 80s, yeah. John Rouse. There is no doubt about that. Um, Elijah, I want to come to you because you've made Brisbane your home. You arrived here in 2002 after 
leaving Sudan, some of you prior, you'd been in Uganda in refugee camps there for about seven years before you yes. arrived here. Can you tell me about that day in October 2002 when you got off the plane at the Brisbane International Airport? Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, when we touched down at Brisbane International Airport, we were seven unaccompanied minor boys, you know, carrying their little I.O. bags, because that's how you identify when you arrive at the airport. And the place was just electrifying. It was amazing, and I was like, oh, this looked like a different planet. <laughs> Seeing we had a long flight all the way from Africa. And, and it was a new journey. It was a new beginning. And this way I will start my new journey. And from that day, have journey along. <laughs> that journey since is pretty remarkable. You've finished your schooling, gone on to study multiple degrees at university as well. You're a criminologist, a, a lawyer. You're a dad. What future do you want to be making for your four children? I want to be you know, all along everything that I've been doing is to prove to myself and my inner self that, you know, anything is possible and you can do anything. And that's what I've been using to motivate and inspire other young people to say, look, life could be rough from beginning and life will never be easy, but you've got to emerge out of it. And that's what I've been doing. And I want to see that in my children to say, look, dad has gone through a rough time, but he was able to emerge. And also I want to see that, you know, that young people commit themselves and also look at other side of, you know, the alive and say, look, I can make it. And also creating the conversation in the community and say, look, someone there need our help and need our support to hold their hand in order to get there. And that's what I want to see. And for my kids, I want to see them to grow up in Australia where, you know, they don't feel left behind or don't feel that they are different but feel that they're part of society and they are there to contribute. I've heard you speak a lot about when you come to Australia and feeling that you need to give back to the community. And I've he also heard you say like what you just said now about you do as Australians do. Where does your culture fit into that though? So where does your, how do you find a balance even within your children of honouring where they've come from but also finding a home here because yeah. that's part of acceptance too exactly, right? Exactly and the beauty of Australia is that we embrace and I think our principles and values that make us Australian and what make Australia unique uh, as a multicultural uh, country in, in the world is that acceptance of other cultures and often in the community, I practice my own culture the way it is and share that heritage with my kid. But again, it's about saying, look, we are in a broad church of Australia. We're in a broad church of cultures. And within that, those cultures, we are one. And the only way we do that is to share that culture with others. And I do share that, but also I do give back to say, my culture is here and I'm able to practice my culture because I had the opportunity to do and the country has given me the opportunity to do that and, and that's a great thing that, yeah. You're someone who never seems to stop, Elijah. Uh, you're involved with so many different community organisations, doing this, doing that, helping wherever you can. You've received so many different awards over the years but in 2019 you are Queensland's local hero. What do you say is your 
is your driving force? My, my driving force has been able to look at the thing differently and say, look, we can build the future. We can determine the future from today. And through, by doing that, it's able to look at the next generation and say, we can build a better future for the next generation. And to do that, we need to create a conversation that actually empower that generation to be able to move forwards and, and say, the future is there and it belongs to us and we can reshape it the way we want it. And that's what I want to see that the society need to get around those things. And it could be fixing the policies that you know, may affect those young people to progress. It could be around putting services that can support those young people to emerge out. And I, I love what John said, you know, if we don't really intervene today and provide a safe place for those children, for young people of today, then we are not building a better future. And that's always my motivation. Yeah, the better future and shaping society. I know you've been doing that. And James, I want to bring you into the conversation here. James Dale, the Queensland Senior Australian of the Year for, for 2019. Because your work hasn't necessarily been focused here in this country or here in this state. It's about what you're doing that's changing lives in Africa with one of our favourite fruits, bananas. <laughs> What are you doing, James? Well, we do a number of things. But in, in fact, Craig, we do have one very large project in Australia. So we've got two in Africa and, and one in Australia. Um, the two in Africa are quite different. One is, um, one is in Uganda. Uh, and, and many people don't recognise bananas are the fourth, fifth or sixth most important food crop in the world. So in the Western world, we always think of it as a, as a dessert fruit. And, something to give the kids for morning tea. In places like Africa, and particularly in East Africa, and Elijah would know this very well, it's their staple food. It's, uh, it's their starch source. Um, and particularly in that sort of East African region, but elsewhere in the world, very, very high levels of, of micronutrient deficiencies. So what we're doing, and there are a number of other projects in other countries as well, is taking their staple food and fortifying them with, with that, that um, micronutrient. For, for us, it's, it's what's known as pro-vitamin A, not vitamin A. Um, so that it, it comes as part of their food, so you don't have to add it. So you're beefing up bananas, yes, effectively. Indeed, <laughs> indeed we are. <laughs> and that's really to overcome this, this micronutrient deficiency. Yeah, which you say is something, you know, when you look around the streets of here in Brisbane, you go, how can this be a problem in 2019, yet it is in developing countries. Um, what's been the eureka moment for you when it comes to these bananas of yours? <laughs> um, the, eureka, the real eureka moment was in, in Uganda. So, so pro-vitamin A is orange, okay? So we've, we've modified the bananas, the East African Highland bananas, and to produce this pro-vitamin A in fruit. So the flesh, is supposed to be orange. We did all the work in Australia first and then took the technology to Uganda. And we had the bananas in the field and they were getting close to, the first crop was getting close to being ready. And, and I was there with, with my colleague Tush who, who runs the project over there with me. And I said, Tush, when are we gonna be able to harvest those? And he said, oh, it's probably another three or four weeks. 
And I said, yeah, I wish we'd know. I wish we knew. And so one of the other guys goes and breaks off one of the bananas off one of the bunches and goes, snaps it, and it was bright orange. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so that was, it took us 13 years to get to that stage. So you've done it in the lab here in Brisbane? We did it in the lab and in the field in Brisbane. We did field trials up in North Queensland to demonstrate that we could do it. Okay, that was the first. We had no idea whether, when we got the money, we got it from Gates Foundation, we didn't actually tell them we had absolutely no idea how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so we developed the technology in, in, in the labs just down the road and then took it to the field in North Queensland. So we knew we could do it. But then we had to transfer that technology to Uganda because one of the very important parts of the project is that the bananas that we release in Uganda will be made by Ugandans for Ugandans in Uganda. That's, that's really important. Yeah, well, you want them to have ownership over the project. Absolutely, absolutely. So the most of the, or a number of the people who are working on the project in Uganda with us are PhD students of ours who came out from Uganda and, and did their training with us and have gone back now and are working in the lab. Um, you mentioned projects in Australia as well, and that's on a very different banana. That's the Cavendish, which yes. is, I think, the Cavendish banana is the most sold item in supermarkets in Australia. Uh, in 10 years' time in Australia, will we, st will we still be eating a, a Cavendish banana? Yes, we will be. Um, some of them may be ours. Uh, so the disease is a disease called Panama disease. Panama disease wiped out this original uh, uh, type of banana, Gros Michel. Uh, Cavendish was resistant to that strain of it, but is very susceptible to a strain called Tropical Race 4. So we've got a choice of either making Cavendish resistant to this disease or to develop a completely different banana. So we're going down the path of developing Cavendish that's resistant to this disease. And we've, we've actually already done that. We've had field trials up in the Northern Territory uh, and we've taken a gene from a wild banana from Southeast Asia and moved that across into Cavendish. So these bananas are going quite happily now. We're going up next week um, in a field trial which is riddled with this fungus in the soil. And they're quite happy. So Cavendish bananas, if we're still eating those in 10 years time, we're going to have to have you to thank James Dale. That's right. Um, look, it's, it's remarkable the, the differences in work that everybody's been involved with from child protection to, you know, bananas in Uganda to your journey from Uganda to now call Queensland home, Elijah. I want to turn to Angel Dixon, who is Queensland's Young Australian of the Year. And Angel, what's your driving force? You're a model, you're a disability advocate. What is it that you know, gets you up each and every morning and, and keeps that passion firing for you? I feel like my husband's going to laugh if I say this, but it's human rights. <laughs> um, I, and my activism is purely just my everyday life. Um, I have experienced um, prejudice and um, kind of I've, I've experienced the confusion that people have when existing around me and interacting with me since acquiring my impairment and I have to advocate for myself every day so I might as well be an activist and advocate for others as well um, yeah because it's around about what 10 years ago a decade ago that you had this big change in your life what happened 
And you know, what was the moment for you where you said, you know what, I need to take charge here. And I need to be not just empowering myself, but others. Sure. It's been a very long journey. Um, so what happened 10 years ago was I had a blood clot that stopped in my spinal cord, um, which is very unusual. Uh, I was very lucky that it did because it was so massive that if it had gone to my brain, I wouldn't be here. Um, but what that did is that it damaged the nerves through my spinal cord. So I am both a stroke survivor and a spinal cord injury community member, um, which is also a little unusual. I don't fit in one category. Um, and it's not something, I, I actually don't feel that I ever really suffered from the acquisition of my impairment. I mean, there is trauma that comes with instant change um, when things like that happen in someone's life. But the, the instant change that was really damaging to me and really difficult for me to cope with was how other people treated me afterwards. So, you know, we have this thing in our society where the people that are at disadvantage or the people that are suffering on their own, we often don't know, but we put extra pressure on them um, to, <laughs> to, to look after everyone else or to solve these problems. Um, and it causes more problems. And it, it, it seems to happen, like I say, with people who experience disadvantage or disability, we, we, have, we sign this, this waiver apparently that says that we, you, know, you, can, you can do certain things with us or you can say certain things to us and that's okay. But it's really not. <laughs> it's not at all. Yeah. And, and it's those assumptions yeah. that are made in society that you're trying to change. Yeah. That you're trying to say, well, hang on a minute. That is not right. What has been the, the biggest challenge since that point, you know, and that, that mindset that potentially you had to shift yourself after, you're 19 years of age, you've gone through this traumatic, life-changing event, and the switch that has to happen in, inside your head to go, well, no, I need to do something about this. Yeah, so um, it started with learning to advocate for myself little things like I would go to stay at a hotel with my partner and instead of complaining that on the website they said that it was accessible but there's two flights of stairs for me to get there but they had an accessible bathroom so they say it's okay. You know, I wouldn't complain or I wouldn't try to fix that, that problem for the next person that came to that hotel and I would let my partner carry me up the flight of stairs instead of saying anything, which is a huge deal. Um, so I gradually became a bit more brave, I guess. It's bravery um, and I would say, actually, hey, I'm not gonna stay here if you know, you've said on your website that this is not accessible and I can't stay here now and I'd like a refund, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, so <laughs> you, know? you started calling out. <laughs> so I started calling it out and it really just started in my own world. Um, and I think it, it probably took nearly 10 years to get to a point, I, I lived in San Francisco with my husband for a while, um, and that's sort of the heart of the disability rights movement. And I met all these people that had had the experiences that I had had. So I actually, I started designing canes, walking canes, because I'm a cane user, I use one every day. Long story short, I wanted to get them out of a medical environment. 
And the only way I could think to do that was to get them on a runway, a fashion runway. So I went and I got some headshots taken of me in LA and I actually reached out to a whole bunch of casting agencies and they all said no um, because obviously no one knows what to do with a model with disability. <laughs> um, and I went, well, stuff it, I'm going to do it myself. So I put myself forward for a Los Angeles Fashion Week runway show and they said yes. <laughs> and then our life kind of changed forever after that. Because that gave you another platform. Yeah. <laughs> and what's happened with this award is that people say, tell us about what you're promoting. Like, what do you want on our radar? And that's been the most important thing for me. Having that, having disability inclusion on people's radar for 12 months, you know, has been such a huge, huge thing. And that's it. being named an Australian of the Year isn't the start of a journey. It's not the end of a journey. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's a, you know, rocket fuel boost <laughs> to a journey. Elijah Ball, you're our local hero. What has that title done for you and your life? The, the, the title has given me the opportunity to share my idea and what I'm passionate about as youth advocates. Uh, and in a way that the same way as Angel and uh, John and Daryl, that it gave me the opportunity to create a conversation on a higher level, on those who, who make decisions on how we support and look after young people in our community. It's been great and been amazing, and I think it also gives that opportunity to other young people to see things differently and say, look, if Elijah can push for this and can emerge out of this, then I can do it. Uh, and nowadays I do speaking to, to school, to different forums, different conference, at least twice a week to different cohort of young people which is amazing. It most certainly is because, well, you're about inspiring the next generation of change makers. And whether it's in your field, whether for you, James, it's about the food that we eat now and into the future. Angel, you know, trying to get disability, inclusion, accessibility, universal design on the agenda, not just as, a, as an issue, but as a society looking to achieve more. And John, that lightning rod a message to, to parents, a message that you wish you didn't have to share, but all of a sudden, as Australians of the year, hopefully you're inspiring others to follow whatever their passion might be, something that they can be dedicated to in life, and who knows, I can't wait to meet the 2020 Queensland Australians of the Year. Thanks so much. Thank you.